we've given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word church. When I say the word church, we all have something that comes to mind, right? We all have some images or some memories, maybe some emotions. It can be an emotional thing. We think of the word church. Maybe when you think of the word church, you think of a building, or maybe you think of, uh, of a steeple, or, or maybe you think uh, uh, nap time, right? Nap time. Like, uh, why don't they provide pillows like they do on the airplane? That could be really nice for church. Uh, maybe it's none of those things. Maybe you remember uh, a memory from when you were really little and you had like that permanent bruise on your right leg because mom or grandma sat next to you through service and remember just pinched you every two seconds just trying to get you to be quiet, right? Uh, You're forever marked by that. I'm forever marked by my first time in church. Uh, I was 12 years old the first time I went to an adult service. I didn't grow up in church. Uh, This was in Dallas, Texas at Highland Park Presbyterian Church. And I sat behind a, a... well, uh, uh, a little man named Ross Perot. Do y'all, mem- do y'all remember Ross Perot? I sat behind Ross Perot, and I must have been a little hellion because Ross Perot turned around a few minutes in the service, and, well, he told me to be quiet, but he used some adult language uh, at me at church. Uh, it was really kind of funny. He w- I'm just picking on Ross. He, uh, but, yeah, that was my first experience in church. Right? That's what I remember, uh, Ross Perot. Uh, maybe you think of church. You think of choirs or hymns or bands or liturgy or incense incense or maybe you think of robes or why is it that men only wear robes on Sunday at church whatever you know but whatever comes to mind when you think of the word church my guess is my guess is that it is a far far cry a long way from what church in the first century actually looked like you see the church didn't begin as a place there was no potlucks there were no pews there were no pulpits There was nothing else that started with the letter P because when church began, it was not a place, it was a movement. It was a movement that changed the world. Now, a lot of people, maybe a lot of us in this room, never really have stopped to think about where this whole idea of church came from or or what the point of it was or how it even got started. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, we actually have the story recorded in the Bible in a book called Acts. And today, we're going to spend some time looking at how this movement got started and what it might suggest for those of us who are a part of the church today uh, as we try to live out that same calling. You see, this church started out as a movement gathered around one simple idea, that Jesus was who he said he was and that God really did raise him from the dead. There was this group of people in the first century who had followed Jesus around during his life on earth. They watched him as he was arrested and as he was killed and as he three days later came back to life. We talked about this two weeks ago, that Christianity began as a historic, began, excuse me, with a historical event. Christianity began with the resurrection of Jesus. And what began as a group of a few hundred eyewitnesses to this historical event eventually grows and grows and grows to 300 years later, numbering more than 30 million people across the Roman Empire. A full third of the entire Roman world professed faith in Jesus. As a matter of historical record, this movement changed the world. But somewhere along the way, the church took a wrong turn. 
Somewhere along the way, the church got off track, and, and people stopped thinking about church as a movement, and they started thinking about church as a place. And I, I want to see if I can show you what I mean by that, because there's a little thing that happened historically with two words where we can see this shift actually taking place. When the Bible originally talked about church, it used a Greek word uh, pronounced ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia. You ready? Ecclesia. I see Greek prose already. Here we go. It's a Greek word that simply means gathering or assembly. An ecclesia or an ecclesia, you can also say, was a group of people gathered around a common idea or a common purpose. This is what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew's gospel. This is just an example. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades, literally the gates of death, death itself, will not overcome it. Jesus says, listen, Peter, here's the plan. Through you and these other apostles, I'm going to build my movement, my people, my ecclesia, and not even death is going to stop it. But as time goes on, something begins to happen. Something shifts. And people begin to think of church not as a movement, but as a place. And instead of using this word ecclesia, scholars begin translating it with a word that they borrowed from the Goths. Do you all know the Goths? These are not your friends from middle school who wore all black. Those are Goths as well. The Goths were the predecessors to the Germans, the Gothic people. Uh, This is where uh, the German folk came from. And the Germans had a word, the Goths had a word that began finding its way into these scholarly writings. It was the word Kirch. Does that sound like anything to you? Kirch. It's actually where we get our English word church from. Kirch in the Gothic language simply meant a religious house. Doesn't sound like a fun place to go to, does it? A religious house. And a shift in, uh, in thinking occurred that changed the fundamental way people related to this idea of church. Instead of seeing church as a movement that they were a part of, church became a religious house, an institution that essentially provided religious services for people and was controlled by powerful people who used it to their own advantage. That was church. That was church through the Dark Ages, the Medieval Ages, for about a thousand years. But then something happened. Fast forward a thousand years after the Goths, and along comes a guy named William Tyndale. We have a picture of William. There he is. Uh, smile, William. Uh, that's as good as it gets. Uh, here you go. You're, you'll see why William is not smiling in just a minute. William was a linguist. Uh, William was fluent, by the way, in six languages, Hebrew and Greek being among them. And William had this conviction that the church was a movement. And if people were going to be a part of this movement, they needed to understand the message. So William began translating the Bible into English for the very first time. This got William kicked out of his country and eventually killed. And part of what upset the people so much, part of what... uh, got William in trouble, was that every time he came to this word ecclesia, instead of translating it church, he translated it with the word congregation or assembly. And this threatened the powers that be. But you see, William understood that church was a movement, a movement that he was willing to die for. And in fact, the very reality that we have English, if you've ever read from an English Bible, The only reason you can do so is because William decided to give his life 
for this movement. Right before he was killed, uh, William said these words to his accusers. He said, if God spares my life, which he didn't, ere many years I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. In my house, we say them's fighting words, right? (laughs) See, there's a danger in our day. And honestly, it's a danger that exists in every age throughout history. And the danger is this, that we as the church might cease being a movement and we might instead become nothing more than a place that provides religious goods. It's a real danger. As one pastor writes, movements move. And so today I want to talk about how is our faith in Jesus moving us as a church. It's a little bit of a sober kind of message. Uh, I've been reading the book of Acts since Easter as we've been walking through this series on the church. Now what? And uh, man, I just got to tell you, uh, it's really amazing. Right at the beginning of Acts, we are given what scholars call the Missio Dei. That's Latin for the mission of God. We're going to read that in just a minute. And what we believe as a church is that that mission wasn't just for the first century church, but that same mission is given to us today. We are called to do life on mission with God. But where did this whole thing get started? Well, let's, let's go right to the beginning. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read these verses to you. Jesus has just been resurrected. Uh, it's 40 days later. He's getting ready to leave his people, and here's the instructions he gives them. Then they, that's the believers, gathered around him. We think about 120. It's probably about how many were there. And asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, he said, excuse me, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood behind them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, pause here. This has to be just one of the oddest stories in all of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, think about, think about this for a moment. Uh, the guys have gathered around Jesus and are like, okay, Jesus, uh, 40 days, you've been resurrected. All right, Jesus, like, what's the plan, right? Uh, is this when the kingdom of Israel comes? Is this when we get to get on the cruise ship that has the caviar and the umbrella drinks and just like cruises? Is, is now the time, Jesus? And he says, look, you, you guys are missing the point here. Uh, okay, Jesus, well, what's the plan? He says, here, here's the plan. You ready? Here's the plan. You are the plan. You. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There I go, oh, okay, Jesus, we, we know Jerusalem. Yeah, we, we, can, we can handle that. Uh, okay, but not just Jerusalem. You're also then going to be my witnesses in Judea. Jesus, that's, that's a little bit bigger. Okay, we, we get that. Uh, and then he says, and to Samaria. And the guy's like, now, whoa, Jesus. Uh, Samaria's on the other side of the railroad tracks. Um, those people are a different ethnicity. That, Jesus, what are you talking about, right? And, th- and then... Uh, And then he says, and not only that, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And at this point, I think the guys are like, hey, Jesus, time out, right? Jesus, Jesus, do you even know how big the whole earth is, Jesus? 
And uh, I think Jesus at this point is probably like, did you guys skip Sunday school? Do you remember the song we learned in Sunday school? He's got the whole world in his hand. You know who that song's about? That song's about me, okay, guys? I know how big the whole world is, right? That's Jesus. Yes, I know, and you are going to be my people, and here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to give you my spirit, and my spirit is going to give you the power to accomplish this mission. Guys, you are the plan. You're the ones I'm choosing. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. Like every good spy movie you've ever seen, right? Or maybe per, for my Saturday Night Live people from like who are old enough like me, you remember? Remember the Blues Brothers? Remember? We're, the, we're on a mission from God. 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 Where, where are the Blues Brothers from? Are they New Jersey? Is that where they're from? Chicago. 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 Thank you. Chicago. Yes. We're on a mission from God. Okay. Back to sermon. Here we go. So, uh, big idea. Big idea. Movements move. Movements move. And so today I want to look at three ways that this first century church was moved by their faith on mission. And here's my goal. I don't want simply to inform you today. My hope is that I might challenge you and that I might inspire you just a little bit to consider how you might be a part of this mission. Three things we must not lose sight of if we're going to carry this mission forward. So move number one, number one, our faith in Jesus moves us moves us to care for those in need. One of the remarkable things about the church in the first century was the way they cared for the poor and the widows and the orphans among them. They took quite literally Jesus' teaching that when they cared for the needs of the least among them, they were in fact caring for him. And we see this in the very next chapter of Acts, just as the church gets going. Luke chap- excuse me, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, before you go there, like we, we like, wait, wait, okay, this is kind of crazy. Maybe these are like hippies in the first century. Like what's actually, here, don't go like, this is not some biblical system for economics. Okay. That's not what he's talking. Here's what I want you to see. There was something about Jesus that so moved his followers that they could not help themselves, but live lives of this crazy kind of generosity. Something about their faith in Jesus compelled them to care for those in need. And we see this in virtually every city that Christianity spread to in the ancient world. Uh, First, in in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was fascinating. In Jerusalem, did you know, the Christians actually ran the largest soup kitchen anyone in Jerusalem had ever seen at the time. Uh, If you were a widow in the ancient world uh, and you did not have family to take care of you, uh, your only hope, for many, their only hope was that they could make their way to Jerusalem where they could beg outside of the temple and maybe raise enough through just begging to meet their own needs. So you had hordes of widows. We, we think thousands of widows gathered in this city. And what the Christians did almost immediately is they set up what uh, literally a bread distribution line. You can read about it in Acts chapter 4. And, and this soup kitchen grew to be so big that the apostles couldn't manage it. They actually had to hire some younger Gentile leaders to take over the soup kitchen because they were doing so much feeding of the poor in the city. It was unbelievable. But it wasn't just in Jerusalem where we see this. We also see this in cities like Corinth 
and Colossae and even Rome. But my favorite story, I think my favorite story has to come from the city of Antioch, just north, about 300 miles from Jerusalem, uh, right in the heart of modern-day Syria. Uh, Antioch was a huge city, uh, mostly uh, Gentile, and in the city... Uh, in the ancient world, when you had an unwanted pregnancy or you had a child that you could not afford to feed, you really only had two options. You could sell that child into slavery if there was a wealthy family that had enough money to buy your child for slavery, or you would simply leave that child outside exposed to the elements until it died. Uh, You can read about this, it was just a horrific practice, but this was common in the ancient world. It was called exposure. And and then this funny kind of thing began to happen in the city of Antioch. These Christians uh, began taking in these unwanted children and raising them as their own. And we actually know about this, not from the Bible, but from a secular historical Roman official who writes about it in a letter to another Roman. He says that there are these, quote, little Christs, which, by the way, is where the word Christian comes from. These little Christs in Antioch that just live these radical lives of generosity towards those in need, taking in unwanted children. They'd never seen anything like it. The Roman officials didn't even know what to do about it, but they loved it because it made managing the city a whole lot easier. You see, this movement just spread. No one had ever seen love like this before. No one had ever seen a community sacrificing themselves so radically, so generously to meet the needs of others. But of course, this is what Jesus did. So it wasn't surprising that his followers would do the same. Now, you see, I think there's a danger in our day, isn't there? Because this, this kind of goes against the grain of some of our American church culture. And, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm, I'm in this same boat with us. We can so easily find ourselves stuck in what one author calls consumer Christianity. You you probably know consumer Christianity, right? Consumer Christianity is like, well, you know, I I really like the the music at that church, but I kind of like the preaching over there. And, you know, honestly, I'd go there, but the seats aren't really comfortable or the coffee's kind of lame. Or this is, of course, you guys would never do that, right? I'm never, never. But see, that's, we, we can get so stuck in thinking that Christianity is all about my preferences and my comfort. And certainly Jesus cares about my need, but the core of our faith is not about my comfort. The core of our faith is about sacrificing in love for others, the mission of God. And so maybe the question for us this morning, and here comes my first challenge, the question for us this morning might be, how are we doing on this one? How are we doing on this one? In what ways are we sacrificing our own comfort, our own preferences, for the sake of loving and serving others? It's a radical call, but it's one that is at the heart of the mission of God. The first century church's faith in Jesus moved them to care about those in need like the world had never seen. But it didn't stop there. Because it's not enough to be moved to good works. To be on the mission of God, we must also be moved to share good news. They work hand in hand, which leads us to our second one. Our faith in Jesus moves us to tell others about what God has done. One of my favorite scenes in the book of Acts uh, comes in chapter 4. 
uh, it's really quite striking. Peter and John, you'll, you probably know those guys, they were two of the 12 that traveled around with Jesus, and they've become prominent leaders in the early church. And one day, they are walking to the temple to go and pray and to teach about Jesus. They would just simply teach about the name, as it's referred to in Acts. And they're on their way. They did this every day. They're on their way to the temple. And as they're heading in, they pass by a guy who's outside begging who's paralyzed. Now, the picture we're given is that this guy has been paralyzed his entire life. He's left outside the gate there to beg every day. And the ironic name of the gate is it's called Beautiful. Because there's nothing beautiful in this guy's life at this time, right? Well, so Peter and John are walking by, and the guy says, hey, God, hey, 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 help, help, help. And they say, look, we don't, we don't have any money, but what we do have to give you, we give you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And like nobody was ready for this, but the dude stood up, and he starts walking. And, and not only that, but he follows them into the temple, and it's almost a, a comedic kind of scene because uh, Peter and John are trying to pray and teach about Jesus, but this guy won't shut up. Like he's just running around praising God and talking about what he's done. He's just, he's just having his day. And I would have too, right? I mean, can you imagine? Right? He goes home that night. He's not sleeping. He's run, running laps around the block or something. He's just thrilled, right? And so then uh, what begins to happen is the Jewish authorities start to get a little ruffled. They, they don't like what's happening here. They thought they had stamped out this Jesus movement when they killed its leader. But what they have found is that the movement has only gotten stronger and there are these rumors that he's actually rose from the dead. So the Jewish authorities come in and like, you know, well, should, should we, what should we do? Should we kill him? You know, so they, they actually arrest Peter and John. And they throw them in prison. They have a little secret powwow where they try to decide what to do. What, you know, do we kill him? Uh, that didn't work so well because we killed Jesus and it's still going. Or, or should we just like, and someone says, well, maybe we should just punish them. Let's, let's flog them. Let's warn them and, and tell them never to speak the name of Jesus again. So that's what happens. And, and this is one of those moments in the Bible where we can kind of roll right past that word flogged. We don't usually use that word. Uh, but, you know, that word flog was a terrible, terrible practice. Um, in fact, if you've ever read about this, or, or maybe you remember seeing Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Y'all remember the movie? And where, where the scene where Jesus is being flogged, he's being beaten with these leather straps that have chunks in them that are ripping out pieces of his flesh. That's flogging. Peter and John were flogged almost to the point of death. In fact, many people who are flogged would go on to die simply from the infection that would settle into the wounds. Peter and John, they're flogged, they're warned. The authorities say, never speak about this name Jesus again, and they send them home. So Peter and John circle up with the rest of the guys that night, and, and, and you can imagine how this meeting goes. Right? They say, hey, what should we do here? And, uh, and, and you know, if I was a part of that meeting, the answer would have been very simple. We don't speak about the name of Jesus anymore and we get out of Jerusalem, right? That would have been Aaron's plan. But these guys had a different plan in mind. And actually Luke records for us their prayer at that leadership meeting that night. It's the very first prayer ever prayed by the church. Let me read it to you. Now, Lord... Consider their threats. Whose threats? The threats of the religious leaders, right? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great what? With great boldness? If I'm Peter and John, I'm not praying for boldness in that moment, right? In fact, I'm going to pray one of those American prayers. Y'all know what American prayers are? We, we pray for safety and for traveling mercies, uh, may we pray for a good parking spot at the Walmart. 
uh, or, or that the Chick-fil-A drive through line won't take too long. Right? These are American prayers. Right? We pray for safety all the time, and we should. We live in the safest country in the world, and we still pray for safety. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of why, and we should pray for safety. But, but you see, these guys should have been praying for safety, but they're not. What are they praying for? They're praying for boldness. What? Something about their faith in Jesus was compelling them to speak his name. They could not refrain from speaking about what they had seen and had experienced and what God had done. And I get, but when it comes to us, when it comes to me, I just got to thinking this week, when was the last time I prayed for boldness? Now, see, I, I get it, right? We don't, we don't like to pray for boldness. We, we'd rather pray for wisdom, and, and wisdom's a good prayer too. But, uh, but when we think about this idea of speaking, about what God has done, we, we kind of get a little cringy, don't we, in our culture? We're, we, we get a little sheepish. We read that word witness that Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, and we start to get some eebie-jeebies on this. kind of conjures up the idea of a guy in a white suit with alligator shoes on TV asking for money or something. But, but that's not what witness means. To witness is simply to speak about what we have seen, to speak about what God has done in our own life. Peter describes it this way in another letter that he writes to the churches. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give it for the reason for the hope that you have. You see, to witness is simply to speak about the reason for your hope, the hope that you have in Jesus. That is it. Witnessing is nothing more and nothing less than giving an explanation for your hope. But this can be really uncomfortable for most of us, perhaps all of us. We much prefer the supposed words of Francis of Assisi. Do you remember these words? Like, preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words, right? Now, there's a problem with that statement. Actually, there are two problems with that statement. First of all, scholars say he didn't actually say it. That's kind of a problem. But the second problem is related to that, which is that Francis couldn't keep his mouth shut. Even if he did say it, he didn't practice it. He was constantly talking about what Jesus did. In fact, he talked so much that his own father outlawed him. His own father stopped inviting him to dinner parties because Francis wouldn't shut up about Jesus. True story. You go Google this stuff. This is true stuff. You see, it's not enough for the church to be a community of good deeds. We must also be a community of witness, speaking about, pointing to what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I wonder, I wonder, challenge number two, what would our lives look like this week if we as a church, what would your life look like this week if you as part of this church were to pray for boldness? What might God do through you. Our faith moves us to care for those in needs are in need. Our faith moves us to speak of what God has done. Our faith in Jesus moves us, third and finally, to go near and far. What do I mean? Part of what it means to be the church is that we are a sent people. Jesus said it this way. He said, just as my father sent me, so I am sending you. And we see this reflected in this Missio Dei statement from Acts 1.8 that I began the sermon with. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. 
That's your hometown. Watch the movement here. Watch the trajectory. Watch the go. In Jerusalem, your hometown, Iron Station, Cheryl's Ford, Stanley, Denver, wherever, wherever you're driving in from, right? That's your Jerusalem. And in Judea, that's the surrounding area. For us, that's, that's Lake Norman. That's Charlotte. In Samaria, as I mentioned earlier, the other side of the railroad tracks, people who are different than you, ethnically, socioeconomically, racially, and to the ends of the earth, quite literally beyond the walls of our own nation. Their faith in Jesus compelled them to go, to move, wherever it was that God was leading them. And you know what's incredible? You read the book of Acts, and what begins with a group of 120 folks in Jerusalem ends with Christians in the city of Rome, thousands of miles away. But what does this mean for us? To be a sent people is to realize this, that wherever you go, you are on mission with God. Wherever you go. When you have a cookout in your cul-de-sac and you're throwing the football out there with the neighbors, you are on mission with God. When you go to your office and you're hanging out with all your coworkers at lunch, you are on mission with God. When you go to the gym and and you pretend to ride the elliptical, but you're really just watching television on the screen, you are on mission. Am I the only one that does? I must say. You are on mission with God, right? Wherever you go, you are a sent people. You are on mission with God. A few months back, I had a phone conversation uh, that really made a deep impression on me. I uh, had called up this business, just some stuff I was having to do uh, for my own family, and uh, the woman on the other end of the phone, we got to talking, and and eventually she found out that I was a pastor here at Westlake, and and she said, "I, I just have to stop you. She said, I just have to tell you, I simply love your church. And I was like, great, how long have you been coming? She said, oh, I've never been there which probably explains why she loved it so much. But anyway, anyway I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She said, I just love your church. I said, well, well, tell me. And she said, well, you know that, that whole Westlake Serves thing that y'all did where you canceled church and you went out into the community? I mean, that was so awesome. Y'all came and served at my daughter's school. This is so cool. Oh, but that's not why I love your church. She said, the reason I love your church, and then she started to get really emotional. She said, the reason I love your church is because my husband died a few years ago. And my daughter, we've all been having a hard time, she said, but my daughter has been devastated. And it's been the hardest year of her life. But a member of your church is her teacher at school. And her teacher has taken such an interest in her life, I simply don't know where we would be if it were not for her. I love your church. Now notice something here. When she said, I love your church, Was she talking about what we do here on Sunday morning? Was was she talking about these chairs and screens or some uh, an awesome building that we will one day have? Yes. No, she wasn't talking about that. As awesome as those things are, she was talking about the church. When she said the church, she was talking about you, a ministry partner who has taken the mission of God so deeply into their own life that they are transforming the lives of others around them. You. Wherever you go are on the mission of God. So the question is, where is he sending you? 
You remember that old Dr. Seuss book? Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, the places you'll go this week. What might God do through you in those places? You see, there's no prerequisite for being a part of the mission. We don't do it because we're smart enough. We don't do it because we're mature enough. We don't do it because we're oh so talented. We simply do it because Jesus has promised us the gift of his spirit and that through the power of that spirit, we are enlisted to be a part of his mission. And I got to thinking this week, can you imagine if with a group of 120 people in first century Jerusalem who took this call seriously, if God could transform the entire Roman world through that 120 people, what could God do through our church in this little community we call Westlake? If we will reject consumer Christianity and love others sacrificially, if we will, we will not only pray for our one more person, but we will pray for boldness that we might have the opportunity just to speak, not because we're, but just to say what God has done for us, the hope he's given us. And if we will say yes to God's invitation to go wherever he sends us, be it our cul-de-sac, be it our classroom, be it our office, or be it our gym. What might God do through this little community we call Wesley? Can we pray?